You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. I'd love to know what was like the best piece of advice that you ever got. Sometimes they come really early in our lives. I remember like the first real strong piece of advice I got was Little League Baseball, and somebody said, keep your eye on the ball really simple kind of pieces of advice. As we grow, our advice becomes stronger, becomes, I think, a little more direct, becomes aimed at some things in our life that are a little bit more important than hitting a baseball. And as we move through life, sometimes those pieces of advice, they kind of get lumped all together and we go, man, there's something actually building in here. This actually starts to feel like something I can sink my teeth into. And so... For me, when I became a dad, I remember this, and I know some of you guys here, your parents, your grandparents, those pieces of advice, they look a little bit differently because they're not just now things that you need to get through your life, but they're now things that you want to pass on. Maybe it's not keep your eye on the ball, but there's plenty of other things under there. And you feel this weight as you move through life to not just absorb things, but to pass them on. Whatever wisdom you've gathered and are still gathering, you want to give it away. So that sentiment is exactly where we're going this morning. So just like Pastor Dave said, this is our second week of this teaching series called Not Today's Satan, this quick study on the basics of spiritual warfare. So really quick, where we've been and where we're going. So last week, we laid a foundation about spiritual warfare and our enemy, who he is, what he's like, and what we're called to do. We centered our study in Ephesians 6 on three verbs, these ideas that we're really supposed to do. Then we laid out eight basic principles about spiritual warfare, who our enemy is and what he wants. So that was last week, just the basic sketch. This week, though, we've got to add some color to it. Um, Like Dave said, if you missed last week, I hardly ever say this because it feels really self-promoting, but you really want to go online and check it out um, because it really does kind of lay the foundations for where we're going to be today. So nchapel.online slash sermons and you can get caught up on anything. But that was last week, basic sketch. Today we're going to add the color. Today we're going to be in Proverbs 7. Proverbs 7 is written by Solomon and it's a narrative, it's a story, it's a tragedy where he wants to pass down some advice to those who will follow him. And like all tragedies, the worst part is watching it unfold when you know that it could be prevented. Makes your heart sink. Proverbs 7 is our enemy's playbook, and it is blown wide open. In Proverbs 7, we see our enemy's dark intent. We see his tactics. And through this one-act play, Solomon becomes this grandfatherly figure who's desperate to pass on what he's learned. He's desperate because the stakes are high and the risks are tremendous, but the potential for success is huge. So let's get oriented to Proverbs a little bit. Proverbs was largely written by King Solomon. Solomon was one of the kings of Israel. He was known as the wisest man who ever lived. 
It's debatable whether you look at some of the choices he made in his life. A couple things you need to know about Solomon. Solomon lived with his life with the accelerator to the floor. He wanted to try everything. If life was a buffet, Solomon wanted a sample of everything on his plate. He wanted to taste it all. And as you can imagine, some of that worked out pretty well for him. Most of it, though, turned out pretty terrible. So toward the end of his life, he realizes that he's actually learned a lot more from his failures than he has from his successes. And so God uses him to write two books of wisdom literature, Ecclesiastes, one of my favorite books, and this one. Proverbs, 31 chapters, where Proverbs, Solomon is this wise, old, grandfatherly type, and as the sun sets on his lifetime of failures and successes, he looks back over his shoulder, and he wants to impart some wisdom to those who will follow him. It's just me, but I like to imagine the wrinkles on his face tell stories that he didn't know when he was younger. His dimming eyes see things more clearly in his old age, and his lowered, hushed voice, weaker than it used to be, still commands attention. Now, here's the thing. Proverbs is a book of poetic wisdom. Most of it is made up of these two-line couplets of poetry called Proverbs. There you go, right? Fittingly. And so if you were going to read Proverbs start to finish, it would feel like you're feasting on fortune cookies. There's so much here. It's meant to be taken in bite-sized chunks, little things. But Proverbs 7 is different. Where we'll be this morning. Solomon invites us to imagine this really vivid, powerful, semi-scandalous scene. It's deep, it's strong, it's instantly relatable, and it's really heartbreaking. It's a one-act play, a tragedy, where we can learn a lesson that might save our lives. So we're going to read it through, we're going to pull it apart as we go, and then I want to give you three tactics from our enemy right from this text. So, intro done, let's get to it. Proverbs chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 1, you can follow along on the screen if you like. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart, say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend. Why? To keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. Don't you just hear Solomon's weathered old voice kind of underneath there saying, ah. It's like looking back on his lifetime of mistakes, times he's taken the side road. With tears in his eyes, he sits his son down and he says, don't make the same mistakes I've made, please. He knows the pain that comes so often in life. And more than anything, he's desperate for his son to keep his feet on the right path. Interesting insight here. It's not the main point of the text, but we're going to stop here for just a second. Spiritual warfare is a multi-generational thing. Okay? So you older people, and if you think I'm going to draw a line in the sand and name an age, keep waiting. You older people, you're not done yet. You've got a story to tell, so speak up. And you younger people, kind of looking over here-ish. Don't be so arrogant to believe we're the first people down this road. Buy somebody a cup of coffee, ask some questions, and listen. You don't need a program to do that, by the way. Your life is the program, and you are the curriculum. 
The biggest gift you can give the generation who will follow you is to let them see what it's like to really follow hard after Jesus. Not the main point, so let's keep going. Verse six, here's what he says. For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice. It's interesting, in Solomon's day, houses were usually two-story structures. The bottom story had no windows, usually to prevent theft, to make it a really safe structure. The top, though, often had a terraced roof where they had shutters or a tight lattice. And what he's describing here is he's out on the roof, and he can look through the little holes in this lattice, and he can see what's happening down here on the street without being seen. So what's he see? Verse 7. And I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. So as the curtain opens on this scene, you can already kind of feel it heating up a bit, can't you? Well, what do we see? We see a young man where he shouldn't be, just kind of wandering around. And as you might expect, things get darker. Verse 10. And behold, the woman meets him. Dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart, she is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home, now in the street, now in the market. And at every corner, she lies in wait. Now we're about to get to the dark heart of this text, because this is a text about spiritual warfare. But before we do... Remember, our enemy does not come with a pitchfork. He doesn't come with the obvious. He's smarter, he's craftier, he's more subtle than that. And so Solomon has introduced the characters, he's set the stage, and we've got nothing left to do but watch this tragedy unfold. Verse 13. She seizes him and kisses him. With bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifice, and today I've paid my vows, and I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him, and at full moon, he will come home. Now, it doesn't take a literary critic to see what's happening here. It's like a bad Barry White song. And yes, I'm aware of the irony of preaching the text like this on Valentine's Day, so sit tight. <laughs> Just my attempt to lighten the mood. So this is a downward spiral with five steps, and we want to understand what's happening here we want to see it clearly. So the first step, just take a look at this, is what we want to call the shock treatment. She grabs him. She calls him. She kisses him, just like blindsides him. And we've got to lift this out of the purely sexual imagery for a second, because isn't that what sin feels like sometimes? Like temptation, just out of nowhere, just blindsides you. Like, where did this come from? Like, ah, how am I feeling angry all of a sudden? Why, where did this bitter come? How'd this get here? I didn't expect this. Maybe one of the most surprising things about our enemy is how surprised we actually are. Second step, flattery. I mean, this one's so paper thin, it's almost embarrassing. She says, you, you, I've been looking for you. 
Oh, really? Wow, well, I didn't really think you thought that much about me. No, she hasn't. She's not looking for him. She's looking for anybody. He just happened to be there. But she flatters him and he buys it. Hear me, whenever the enemy wants to invite you into sin, he always starts with you. What you deserve. You should have this. I've made this for you. You need this. And those attacks can be deeply personal because they're deeply individualized. The enemy loves to play into our natural narcissism. (laughs) Third step in this downward spiral, the appeal. This is in verses 16 and 17. In Solomon's day, only the, the really rich could afford linen, and only the super rich could afford linen from Egypt. But the fact that she's prepared it for him only deepens the flattery. I've done this for you. I've brought out the best. And then I don't want to make you blush here, but, um, well, since we're here, verse 17, myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. In Solomon's day, those were considered aphrodisiacs. <laughs> And you couldn't get them just anywhere. You had to travel great distances and pay high prices. Another way of saying, look, this is going to be the best night you've ever had. And she just rolls it out there for him. Which naturally leads to the fourth step. Step four, the proposition. Verse 18. She asks. She says, come. She invites, it's plain, it's brash, and he's pulled in. Quick insight, in his war against you, the enemy knows your deepest wants, and he knows how to present them to you, but he always leaves it up to you to make the final call. Why? Because then you're the one on the hook. You're the one who feels ashamed. You're the one who stands condemned. You're the one who he can... He'll take you 99 yards, and then he'll leave it to you. That's what we see here. That's step four. Last and fifth step, reassurance. This one you can see right there, not too hard. She says in verse 19 and 20, basically, everything is going to be fine. This is this thinly veiled, like, no, 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 my husband's not even here. He took a big bag of money with him. Translation, like he's going to be doing business for a long time. This isn't like a one-night thing. You're going to be fine. You can get away with it. Look, I've got a couch, everything that you could want. But here's the most heartbreaking thing of all. We've seen this before. Our enemy is actually painfully predictable. Look, I've got a couch, everything you could want. It's right here. When Eve saw the tree and saw that it was good for food. Sound familiar? My husband's going to be gone for a long time. Don't worry, we're going to be safe. Surely, you won't die. Same tactics, different stage. And that's where she leaves off because we know, or better, we feel what happens next. So Solomon picks up his narration again with the tragic result in three fatal but vivid word pictures. Take a look in verse 21. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. And with smooth talk, she compels him. 
All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver or a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that this will cost him his life. Doesn't that just read like a tragedy? Like there is no good thing in here. There is no highlight in this. There is nothing good to extract from this text other than caution. This is hard to read. It's hard to sit with. It's not a pretty picture. And by that point, you can almost hear Solomon's heavy-hearted sigh going, oh, I've been there. My sons. He sits back in his chair. His face falls. And then he comes full circle in verse 24. And now, my sons... Listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray to her paths. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Like she's taken out a whole army of people. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. So here's where we've got to go next. A couple of things. First, even though the protagonist in this story, main character, is a young man. This is not about men. And even though the antagonist in this is a seductive woman, this is not about women. And even though the main text looks like sexual sin, that's not purely what this is about. We've got to extract this, lift a little higher, and I'm going to ask you to think a little more critically about what this is showing, okay? Second thing, um, like I said, the irony of preaching this on Valentine's Day is not lost on me. It's interesting she uses the word love. We're going to talk about that in a little bit because that's not what we actually see here. Third thing, for me anyway, and this is probably the deepest feeling that I have when I read this text, is I'm aware that, and I think we all need to be aware, that spiritual warfare is a deeply personal thing. And so this is an uncomfortably personal text, which is why we chose it. You want to be a strong church? You want to see revival happen? We've touched on this a couple of weeks in a row here. Revival happens on your knees in your relationship with God. And the hardest thing about preaching a text like this is I look out on you guys this morning and you guys online and people that are going to be here at second service. We're all getting pulled like a thousand and one different directions. And the enemy is speaking a thousand and one different whispers in your ear. And he's trying to get you to do something like this. And I can't wrap my arms around all of that. <laughs> That's super hard. And so the best thing that I can do with this text, and it's where we're going to go next, is to point you to some of the common tactics of our enemy in this text and then point you to the Savior who has already defeated them. So that's where we're going, and that's how I want you to see this. So I want to use this one-act play to pull out three tactics, and there's more in here, but for time's sake and for the day, we're just going to hit the big three. And I want to give you a gospel corrective for each. So we're going to do a tactic and then a gospel corrective. All good? All right, tactic number one. Here we go. Our enemy wants you aimless, alone, and afraid. That's how he wants to keep you, aimless, alone, and afraid. It's interesting to me that the first time we see this young man, he's in a crowd. But then as the text unfolds, he gets alone. And then not only does he get alone, he just kind of wanders around. He's just like aimless. 
He has no direction. Do you know what you have to do to give the enemy an opportunity to get a foothold in your life? Nothing. You just have to drift. Spiritual aimlessness. And he takes advantage of every opportunity. I don't want to spook you out here, but you don't have to go looking for trouble because trouble is already looking for you. I know that sounds like something like maybe your great aunt used to say, but it's absolutely true. We have an enemy. He's on the offensive. He has a plan. He knows that he is mortally wounded. He knows he will not recover. He is going down kicking and screaming, but he wants to take you with him. Talked about that last week. This is what Peter says when he says that our enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Let's just get above the fold on this one. And maybe this is like kind of fresh off the presses. Aren't you tired of seeing news stories and headlines about Christian leaders who have fallen into sin? You know, and, and like there was another big one this last week where this whole, I'm so tired of seeing that. And I'm tired of seeing it because the victims of that, it, that's the pain. It's not just their loss of influence and their ministry and blah, blah, blah. It's the collateral damage of the people that they've hurt along the way. And you go, ugh. Because underneath all that frustration, there's a really deep question. How does that even happen? How do you lead in a church or in a ministry for decades and then all of a sudden, Proverbs 7. That's how it happens. Hear me on this one. When you are spiritually alone and you are spiritually aimless, you are spiritually vulnerable. So let's bring some gospel to this tactic, can we? What's the opposite of aimless and alone? And you might think my answer right now is, well, get in community or join a group. I don't think I want to go there. I actually want to go deeper than that because I think our enemy has a deeper, darker purpose. I think the biggest obstacle to actual community in churches isn't like not enough group life options or like not enough programming options. I think the biggest issue, at least for me in my experience, is just my pride. I don't want to be known. I want to keep my stuff hidden, right? I would rather just project perfection and let you all figure it out, right? We want to come so close, but there's a boundary there. We're not made for that. You're the same way, though. Everybody's got secret battles. We got stuff we want to hide, stuff we wish wasn't true of us. We got closets full of stuff and secrets and stories. In fact, the original title of this teaching series was called Secrets. And you know what we do in church with that closet full of stuff? We don't want anybody to accidentally open the door, so we open the door and push stuff further back in there. (laughs) We need to remember, church is not the solution to my spiritual pride. Jesus is. Spiritual pride comes when I trust my perfection more than Christ's, when I value what I can do more than what Jesus has done, when I look to myself more than Jesus. Consider this. The enemy loves churches full of people as long as those people are full of themselves. (laughs) He doesn't care how many people you pack in the door. As long as you're not madly in love with Jesus, that's what makes him angry. And here's where the gospel conquers loneliness, aimlessness, and fear all in one big swoop. When Jesus died, he became not only your savior, but your security. And so here's the gospel point. Jesus is my savior, but he's also my security. I don't have to be insecure. 
I don't have to worry about this. Let me cast a little vision for you. I think one of the greatest opportunities for churches in times like these of profound insecurity are to be places where people are deeply known by and deeply secure in Christ and Christ alone. Spurgeon said this. He says that church is not an institution for perfect people. It is a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace. And so when the enemy wants you alone, aimless, and afraid, sink your security in Christ and Christ alone. That's his first tactic. He just wants to pick you off, and then he'll snipe you. Tactic number two, the enemy targets your desires. This one's not hard to see. You get this one, because what we see in Proverbs 7 is a young man dizzy with desire. But hear me on this one. Desire is not the problem. That's not the problem, because here's the kicker. Our enemy doesn't want to kill your desires. He just wants to remove them from God. He just wants your desires out from underneath God's authority. He wants you profoundly happy now. He just wants you godless. Underneath every temptation, the sin is, or the enemy is whispering the exact same question, and here it is. Who has final authority over your desires? And his subtle implication is, you do. At the crux of every sin is the idea that I understand my appetites better than God does, and so I'm free to satisfy them on my own terms. And the truth is, no, I don't, so no, I'm not. (laughs) The most heartbreaking thing about sin, as I see it, isn't just how destructive it is, it's how narcissistic it is, how self-centered it can be. Living in sin is just me saying, I am the final arbiter of truth in my life. I get to say what's right and wrong. I get to say what I want. Guys, that's just narcissism, and we've all been there. And it's heartbreaking to see. And our enemy absolutely loves it. So here's the gospel corrective for this one. Jesus knows my desires better than I do. Jesus knows my desires better than I do. Hear me, God created you with profound longings, these deep, wonderful, beautiful longings. And because he created you and put those things in you, he knows more about them than you do. So let's get specific. Proverbs 7 uses some pretty intense imagery. So I want to take a few moments to talk about this as it relates to our sexuality. We're not going to stay here long, so don't get nervous. God's word teaches that human sexuality should exist within the boundaries of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Now, you may feel that your desires, your expectations, your inclinations, maybe even your design says, no, my sexuality should not be confined to those boundaries. But here's the reason I bring all of this up. Part of discipleship, really following hard after Jesus, is submitting myself to those boundaries that God gives me in his word and trusting him to be good to me when I do. So to those of you who are engaged in dating and if you're sexually active, or for those of you right now who are living and expressing your sexuality outside the boundaries of God's word, I'm not trying to nail you on this one. I'm really not. I'm just trying to invite you into something better. Take God at his word. Trust that he's right. Trust that his boundaries are good. And that takes a profound amount of faith because it doesn't make any sense at first. 
Mandy and I, uh, when we do premarital counseling here at the chapel, we meet with couples, and from time to time, if we meet with a couple that's sexually active and engaged, we ask them to hold off until their wedding, and it is the most awkward, painful, like, asinine, insane-sounding conversation. Why do we do it? We do it because I want to give you every possible opportunity to experience the goodness of God, and I'd be misleading you if I didn't give you that opportunity to follow him in faith. That's all it is. So as tough as that is, guys, he's so good. Now lift this out of the sexuality for a second, because that's not just what this is about. That's true in every area of our life. I don't care if it's your finances, the way you view your parenting, the way you view your neighboring, the way you view yourself. We are not autonomous people. We think we are. The truth is no. Enemy wants to target your appetites and then get you autonomous, but God says, no, 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 no. I know more about you than you do. You just got to trust me. One final important word on this one. Every area of your life, your sexuality, anything else, is an area of discipleship, and it should be handled that way. Here's what that means. Some of you have experiences with churches, and you have experiences with Christians that say something like this. Look, Stop your bad behavior, clean yourself up first, and then you will be welcome here. Okay, that makes for some really well-behaved people. The only problem is, it's not the gospel. Jesus didn't talk that way. Discipleship is the process of trading one authority, mine, for another authority, Jesus's. So don't feel embarrassed, don't feel angry, don't feel fearful. Jesus welcomes those emotions, and so they are welcome here. And I get it, surrendering this part of your life to Jesus could be the toughest thing you've ever had to do. My word to you is simply this, he's worth it. And he's very, very good to you. So that's tactic number two. The enemy targets your desires, so remind yourself that Jesus knows your desires better than you do. Well, what about afterward? Because here's the thing, those first two deal with what leads into sin, or these calls to sin, But it's not enough for the enemy to knock you down. The enemy wants you to stay down. And so we got to talk about that. And this is tactic number three. The enemy wants you to stay accused. He is a professional guilt monger. And he wants you to live in accusation. Last week we saw this from Revelation chapter 12. One of our enemy's names is the accuser of the brethren, which is just a fancy way of saying he wants to hijack your identity. Author and counselor Neil T. Anderson writes about this. Here's what he says. I'm just going to read this to you because it is super powerful. He says, Satan often uses temptation and accusation as a brutal one-two punch. He comes along and says, why don't you try it? You can get away with it. Who's going to know? Sound like Proverbs 7? Then as soon as we fall for his tempting line, he changes his tune to accusation. What kind of Christian are you to do such a thing? You're a pitiful excuse for a child of God. You will never get away with it. You might as well give up because God has already given up on you. You ever heard that from the Satan? I have. It's terrible. He continues... We have all heard Satan's lying, hateful voice in our hearts and consciences. He never seems to let up on us. Many Christians are perpetually discouraged and defeated because they believe his persistent lies about them. And and those who give in to his accusations end up being robbed of the freedom that God intends his people to enjoy. What's he saying? 
simply. The enemy wants to accuse you of what you used to do so he can remind you of who you used to be. He wants you to live in accusation. So what's the gospel corrective for that one? This one's my favorite. How do you get out from that accusation? You answer accusation with identity. You answer accusation with identity. There isn't anybody in this room or anybody watching online that is outside the reach of our enemy's accusation. Why? Because we've all done stuff in our life that we wish we wouldn't have. All that stuff in the closet that we want to hide. And the enemy would love to resurface some of that and present it to us. We've all been Proverbs 7 guy. <laughs> Overconfident. We've been naive. We've been gullible. We've been blind. I feel that. Holy smokes. <laughs> There's things that the enemy presents me with, elements of my past, elements of my insecurity, and he presents that to me out of nowhere, and he knows exactly how to present them to you. You ever experienced that? He knows exactly what to show you. For me, just to be really candid here for a minute, they sound like this. No one would respect you if they knew. No one would listen to you if they knew. Or, it's really pointed, no one would love you if they knew. He loves to get at this. That's how he does it. But it gets worse because nestled inside those lies, he hides another one. He says, no one would love you if they knew. And Jesus feels the same way. Isn't that sick? But that's what he wants to do. This is how our enemy works. He's got to sneak it in there because he knows he can't aim from my head. <laughs> He's going to aim for my guilt. So what do you do? Every time he leads with an accusation, he says, you know what you are? You're a sinner. You respond back with your identity. And you go, you know what? I am. But that's not all I am. In Christ, I'm holy. In Christ, I'm free. In Christ, I'm loved. In Christ, I'm adopted child. I am washed. I'm blameless. I'm righteous. You can call me whatever you want because the God of the universe calls me his own. The way to deal with the enemy's accusation is not to downplay my sin, but it is to magnify God's grace. You don't need to run and hide from what the enemy says about you. You need to rest in what Jesus has already done for you. You answer accusation with identity. The enemy does not get to say who you are. He's not your judge. He's just your accuser. He does not have the power to pronounce a final say over you or to deliver a final verdict over you. And in the courtroom of Almighty God, our enemy's accusations are a faint whisper compared to the overwhelming, enduring trumpet call of grace that is shown to us in the cross. And the second the enemy lifts his finger to accuse you, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world, stands up and says, sit down, you have nothing more to say here. He has given us our identity and so those accusations, they're water off a duck's back. You answer his accusations with your identity. Here's my point. In the cross, you are not a failure who is sometimes a child of God. In the cross, you are a child of God who sometimes fails. And that is a big distinction so when he accuses you, you answer accusation with identity. Now, I need to say something here as we wrap up. Everything I've said the last 
10, 15 minutes anyway, is true of some of you. Some of you here and some of you watching. If you have not confessed Christ, if you have not received forgiveness, if you do not belong to him, the enemy's accusations are true of you. And you need to settle that. So let me help you out with this. God's word teaches that we are all sinners, every one of us. We've all got this monkey on our back. And rather than compare sin and say, well, mine's not as big as yours or blah, blah, blah. No, 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 We've all got it. We're all steeped in it. Buy me a cup of coffee and I'll tell you all about mine. And while the enemy wants to highlight that and get you stuck there, the truth of the gospel is that God loves you enough to send his son to say, I'm going to settle that debt. I'm not going to let them stay trapped in that sin. I want that one back. And that's true of every one of you. God loves you more than you are ever going to realize. And so when you say, all right, I understand that I'm a sinner. I admit that. I'm believing in Christ and Christ alone to pay that debt. I'm not going to try and impress God with my good works. I'm not going to try and hope that I get across some line somewhere. No, 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 no. I'm going to confess the sufficiency of Christ, and I'm going to pin it all on him all of a sudden, all those shackles fall away. All those accusations fall away. The enemy has no power over you anymore. So if you've never asked for God's forgiveness, what are you waiting for? (laughs) Today is the day that you silence the enemy in the power of the cross. The enemy wants you to live in accusation, so answer accusation with identity. So we're going to close in just a second. We're going to sing a song. It's kind of one of my favorites. Um, It's In Christ Alone, and it fits this passage incredibly well. In Christ Alone, it's this song with four verses, and we're going to sing all four of them. And they kind of build on each other, so I want you to watch out for that as you're singing. The last verse is probably my favorite. Here's what it says. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man could ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. In the power of Christ, I stand, period. And I hope that that's true of you. Let's pray. God, we confess your goodness. Confess your power. Uh, This enemy who seeks us out and tries to lure us in has no power over us because of the cross. Say thank you for Jesus who changes everything. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, Please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.